A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. Today's episode is called Only Barbarians Wear Trousers. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Merry Christmas, Matt. Ah, Merry Christmas to you there, Spanners. Hope you've been enjoying your time away from the microphone. But I have, and I've been listening in, and I loved the first five minutes of your circuits chat with Anil uh, until he rejected China and then I rage quit it. I will get back to it though. Uh, well, that's okay. Uh, all the good stuff happened after that, unfortunately. So, uh, Yes, you're right. I had planned to take a month off from podcasting, but I just couldn't resist jumping back in the shed for the New Year's episode as we had the chance to catch up with top UK lawyer Peter Wright to talk about some of the legal implications of some recent F1 news. So we're going to talk about Liberty Media claiming back their trademark from a fellow F1 podcast. We will look at the ramifications again of the McHonda split, and we'll take a level-headed look at the controversy over Lewis Hamilton's tax, and also Lewis Hamilton's social media faux pas. But first, Matt, I'd like to thank you personally for a fabulous 2017. I think it's fair to say we've built a podcast and a community that people enjoy. Did you know that we had nearly 60,000 audio downloads in November? We've had individual 60,000 downloads in November. We've individually had episodes with 7,000, 8,000 downloads. And we've had the YouTube versions have up to 3,000 views on YouTube. And none of it would have happened without your work and support. I just want to take the time to thank you individually. Thanks, Matt. Oh, well, thank you. And of course, you know, none of it would have happened without you. So yeah, obviously. Yeah. So obviously, <laughs> so I'll, I'll I'll skip the thanking you then, since it's so obvious. No, but people don't realize the the amount of work you put into the background, making sure that we're prepped, making sure that we have actual knowledge and content that makes us look like we know what we're doing. Uh, but I will ask you, Matt, what has been the highlight of the year for you in this podcasting sphere? 
that's a tough one. But if there was one thing that just made my jaw hit the floor, it was when uh, our interview with uh, Matthew Carter, when he talked about the engine modes at Spa with Grosjean. That was just a moment of, am I hearing what I'm hearing? I cannot believe it. Obviously, the F1 community and media picked up on that and it was everywhere for the next week. And even in the next race, people were talking about it on Sky. But what was fascinating at the time was Matthew Carter was going to skip past that and he was trying to move on to the next subject. And we were like, no, 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 no. Wait back. Wait, what? They did what? And he's like, oh, yeah, right. And he does that constantly, which is, uh made him a fantastic guest for us. Absolutely. Well, what about you? What are some of your favorite moments from 2017? Uh, well, definitely a highlight has been Joe Saywood, and he's been equally scary and fantastic in equal measure. I- I've just found out that he genuinely doesn't think he's intimidating. But let me tell you, those first few shows with Joe, I honestly, I thought I was messing up every single time. I thought I was annoying him with every time I opened my mouth. Uh, that's very funny. My wife is the same way with me. Any any question I ask is now automatically a criticism, no matter how well-meaning it was. Any more highlights for you, Matt? Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, just on a personal level, I think the uh, solo Brad show that I've recorded and will be released, I believe, on the 7th. The, on the 14th. Um, Setup Masterclass. Now, yeah. yeah, the 14th oh, now. Yeah. Oh, good. That gives me more time to procrastinate editing the whole thing. <laughs> Wonderful. And and and, and it was uh, not only because I did it by myself, I'm getting more used to having guests on by myself, but because I was able to master the mechanics of getting the live stream and everything running in a very short period of time. Because, of course, you were supposed to be in that show and then you selfishly caught your house on fire so that you could not participate. And, you know, I had to step in my house was genuinely on fire you try making that phone call to your podcast whatsapp group yeah guys i'm a i was planning to be on i promise my house is on fire you have to do it Uh, i did catch some of that live stream absolutely fantastic crucial for any sim racers and people who just want to understand the setup work Uh, bradley's an excellent communicator so we're, we're very lucky there another personal highlight for me was the celebrity interviews particularly the one with jack nichols because he, you were on that, weren't you, as well, Matt? He's a guy we hear on TV, we hear in media, but he was just so relaxed and casual and open. It was like he was just sat in my living room. Yeah, and 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 he brought zero attitude given his accomplishments, which is which was wonderful. I mean, he just really, I mean, yeah, this show was always very much about him and his experience because he's had an experience that we dream of. But he just he brought it in such a way that he was just another member of the panel at the same time. And it was really very, very nice. And it was it was a great chat. Yeah, of course, as well, speaking to Mark Priestley from a McDonald's. Uh, and what people didn't hear is for about 40 minutes of that interview, he was just trying to find some Internet to be able to to do the interview. And he could easily have fobbed this off. But you kind of learn about people in adversity and his attitude was, no, I'd arrange to do it. I'm going to speak to these guys. And in the end, he did the yeah Wi-Fi from a corner of McDonald's uh, speaking to us. It took a bit of editing, but um, yeah, it was a measure of the man. What a nice bloke and well worth getting the interview. Yeah, no, he, he's always struck me as being quite the character. And I got to say, having read the book, I know it's it's if you haven't read the book, Go read the book. I will just say that because your story about him and the Wi-Fi comes through clearly in the book. Uh, And also, it's worth noting that those interviews don't happen overnight. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of dead ends that are pursued. And if it wasn't for our large crew, I think it was a Neil that did all the groundwork with Jack. um, I would not have the time to to do that. And and the lads are going to push 
for more of that kind of content and more interviews next year. And and lastly, Matt, I think a highlight has been the Patreon Slack group. All I really wanted was a forum so that the listeners who supported us financially would have somewhere to chat. What I didn't realise is that we would end up out of that crew, not only have people having people fact check us all the time, not only people forming friendships and being part of our, you know, F1 week and fandom, but we've actually got out of it a graphics designer who does the stuff with the website and a video editor. So literally that community is part of the creation of Missed Apex. Yeah, and it's been wonderful to find people uh, contributing their unique and creative skills to help the whole venture succeed. It, it, it's been... Uh, it's been uh, 2017 generally for me has not been the greatest of years professionally, but this has been a real highlight seeing this community come together and, and help make this project succeed. All right. Enough of the self-congratulation. Let's bring on our guest. Joining us today is Peter Wright, founder and managing director of Digital Law UK. Peter, how are you, son? I'm very good. Thank you, Spanish. Yourself? Sorry for calling you, son. I've slipped into Essex because I was doing my Essex family tour. <laughs> uh, you, you're also a listener to Mr. Apex as well as being a legal expert. I am, yeah. I've really enjoyed uh, particularly the second half of the season, the the race reviews and the climax of the championship. Um, I think my favourite episode was probably just where you were so happy um, after uh, Singapore. You know, you were absolutely ecstatic um no, so wasn't. you know it was <laughs> i remember thinking i remember even before i listened to it i thought spanish is going to have been i could almost hear the explosion in stevenage you know when when i when that happened and i thought you're just going to be really happy with this and sure enough it was a great episode so me and my son were really... staring at the screen for about five minutes we just couldn't believe it. it's like has that happened did that just happen <laughs> uh i know you're a fan of the joe shows as well I am, yeah. Um, I mean, that that's certainly my my personal uh, highlight of the year from a Mist Apex perspective has been having Joe on. I mean, um, I used to hear him on uh, the the other podcast he used to occasionally do. What are you on about? Very occasionally. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, that was far more amateur. I mean, you know, it was almost like down the line and you could hear the static in the background. Um, but having him on after every race or virtually every race, it seemed like, has been really, really good this year. So whatever you're doing, be it leaving a bin bag with used 50s in it somewhere <laughs> that he collects or whatever it is that allows us to have Joe on, then then please carry on doing it. I really hope we're able to uh, hear more of him uh, in, in 2018, definitely. Genuinely, it is simply his generosity and it is a not a generosity of money or of uh, of of time even it's a willingness to share himself and share of himself he gets a genuine buzz i think from bringing people closer into the paddock because like you said there no there's no bag of 50s and certainly <laughs> out of all the things joe does i think this might be one of the few things that doesn't pay so we have a lot to thank him for uh, but peter uh, how about you let's let's set the groundwork because we're going to be talking about, you know, F1 legalness, which I believe is a phrase. Uh, what, what's, uh, what's your authority to talk about such things, Peter? How do you make a living? So I run a, a law firm that focuses on uh, the law relating to things online, hence Digital Law UK. Um, it, it does what it says on the tin almost, but we have a real focus on things like social media law, data protection, cybersecurity regulation. And at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around the European General Data Protection Regulation for, for those that are into that. Um, so we're doing a huge amount of advising clients all around the world on what they need to do when they're using people's data online. 
Um, and I must actually also add my thanks that after the last Missed Apex podcast, I was on one of your, our Missed Apex listeners, um, Peter Goodchild from the University of Law, got in touch and said, would you like to come and speak to my students? And it was great in September. I went along to the University of Law in London and got to speak uh, in, a, in a lecture theatre with about 100-odd students and talking to them about these sorts of things and also hopefully getting them to think about some of the issues they'll have to face in their careers. And none of that would have happened without Missed Apex. Well, you are welcome, Peter. And I know how much you charge per hour, so I am fully going to just sneak in little legal questions for missed apex as well in the course of this interview uh, to try and get the answers <laughs> and of course if you want to thank peter goodchild in person you can take one of the five remaining slots for our go-karting trip down to daytona milton Keynes on the 27th of january 60 quid daytona are letting us race for for 50 minutes of on-track action you do have to be quick guys there are five places left and i'm expecting that once the misery of uh, January sets in, people might be looking for ways to cheer themselves up. So get in, come go-karting with us. I promise not to take out a patron and put him in the wall again. Sorry, Manny. Okay, so let's um, talk about one of the first subjects that we've got you here for. Uh, Liberty Media are claiming back their trademark. So there was a podcast that was using the Formula One name. They've now been told that they can't use it anymore. And... As a result, they've had to change their whole brand. Now, this is one of the first indications of how we've seen Liberty Media treating the bits of its trademark that it doesn't have full control of, and one of the first times we've seen it interacting with what Joe might call us bottom feeders. And I'm including us in that as well. Uh, so, you know, what, what can this say? Uh, what can we kind of glean from this, not change of tactic from them, but certainly a change of tactic from F1? Um, I think it's very interesting, and I think it all ties into the the Liberty F1 rebrand. So we saw that new logo at the uh, at Abu Dhabi, uh, and it was interesting to hear um, Joe's comments on this actually at the end of the season, because the reason for that rebrand is because the old F1 logo, which I was certainly a fan of, and it had that hidden one in the middle of it. Um, it turns out that there's certain things that you can't do with it. Um, you can't shrink it very well. If you were to have that on a mobile device, like, say, a phone or a tablet, and have it on there as an icon, it would be quite difficult to see. Um, if you were to shrink it onto paperwork, it's quite difficult to see. What was interesting was Joe made the point about apparently you can't embroider the thing very easily either. Ah. So suddenly the case to to have a new logo became quite pressing. And I've just been through a similar exercise, actually, with two companies, um, my own company and another one that I'm a director of. And it was quite interesting to see that we've had real problems when it came to um, sometimes taking a traditional logo and what do you do with it and respecting people's views on that, shrinking it down, playing with it. Um, it's kind of the current thing when it comes to branding and marketing that people are very, very keen to uh, to make these logos work in a digital age. and. So when this happened um, at the end of this year, I thought this is entirely in keeping with what I'm hearing from sort of branding and marketing experts out there in the industry. And um, so then when you tie that in, it seems that they've taken this effort to bring in these consultants and to design the new logo, which if you've seen the 3D video, you can move it around, you can do things with it. And this kind of ties into that in terms of the, the work they've then done. OK, we've got this new logo, we have this new brand, and now we're going to start enforcing it around the world on all the various different mediums. 
And of course, one of that one of those mediums though has been a podcast that has been using it for about eight or nine years, and mm-hmm. they had had a I think an, a previous agreement to be able to use that. And I think, am I right in thinking that maybe previously podcasting had almost been too small to care about, even kind of beneath blogging, so it had flown under the radar. Uh, and then when Bernie finally realised, oh, there's this podcast that uses our trademark, it was kind of, uh, I guess fine whatever i think that was definitely the case um so i I think originally yeah bernie got in touch in about 2013 with them and they came to an agreement that was basically a sort of one year rolling agreement in place um which they'd had with with the formula one formula one management and then of course liberty have come in and said uh actually we don't want to renew this but I, i think you're quite right in 2013 um i suspect that I mean, we know that Bernie never really got digital anyway. So as a result, I think um, they ended up saying, look, you carry on doing this. They weren't particularly worried about the blog and the associated podcast going out. They were they were quite relaxed about that because I, th- I think Bernie probably felt, look, as long as it wasn't doing anything to damage his brand and his organization, he was happy to carry on. But Liberty have made it quite clear that they have considerable plans when it comes to digital. And it's almost like this is part of clearing the decks, really. Yeah. And and to that end, maybe I'm wrong in my surmise, but I would think it's not so much the name of the podcast that's problematic, but the fact that at the very beginning of the URL, it starts with F1. I would think that was really probably what made them have to pay attention to it initially. And once, of course, I would guess once they had the agreement, then it was up to Liberty whether or not to continue it or not. But I I want to point out that for everyone who is going to yell at Bernie for not getting digital, I think they were just ahead of their time. Because didn't they not have a service called F1 Digital like way back in the late 90s, early 2000s that got no traction at all? I think the problem was he just tried to do it too soon and then decided it was never going to work and wouldn't didn't revisit it as times change. Well that was his digital TV service I think. They they spent millions on having these like 50 trucks that went from race to race producing this digital TV feed. I think Dame, Damon Hill might have been one of the commentators they had on there then in the sort of the the early 2000s doing this thing. Um and, but unfortunately, I think the, the amount of subscribers was was tiny, you know, minuscule yep. compared to what we we have on uh, pay-per-view now. So it, indeed, that aspect, I think they were ahead of their time um, and got quite heavily burned given they made this massive investment and then had to pretty much write it off and go back to using local broadcasters for the majority of the global um, TV coverage afterwards. So obviously the chat room here, sorry, not obviously the chat room. By the way, if you want to join the chat room, go to YouTube and search Missed Apex Podcast. You can click subscribe there and there's a little bell icon. If you click that, you'll get a notification every time we go live. And in the app, that's where the chat room reside for people who are struggling to get there. Uh, they've said that actually that podcast has been online for 13 years, making mm. it all the more painful. Um, and Rob Graham is saying they actually paid an annual fee on that rolling contract that you're talking about. I mean, that's interesting. And whatever that fee was, uh, you'd have to think it was worth it. I think if we had an opportunity to use Formula One, Matt, in our, in our title, uh, we would, we would certainly take that and we would, we would put, pull together as much money as we could to make that happen because you're, you're straight there in the Twitter recommended contacts. You search for an F1 podcast in the podcast app. It, it comes right up there at the top. So there's no doubt that they've, 
they've they've gained a massive advantage from being able to do this. Um, but generally, what sort of uh, legal position were they in? Is there no squatters' rights when it comes to using a name or a trademark? The fact that they're there for 13 years, can't you argue that you've let someone build their livelihood around it, you've let someone build their reputation around it, to then take it away suddenly is, is somewhat cruel? That's a very interesting point, and you're quite right. The, I mean, there are certain whys and wherefores here, and um, the the guys behind um, the podcast were actually quite open and honest and said, I think, you know, they, they could have perhaps taken this on if they'd wanted to, um, particularly when um, Formula One first got in touch with them. But you have to bear in mind that there will be a certain inequality of arms there, particularly if um, this was something that was being run by uh, a guy in his spare time. He's not going to have the millions to throw at a dispute like this that uh, Mr. Eccleston certainly did at the time. Um and uh, it, it's interesting in terms of how they then tried to enforce it because it's it's a mixture of the, if we want to go into it, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act um, from the US and the US Lanham Act because, of course, this is a, uh, a site that's based in the US as well. Well, give us a bit of a primer. Okay, okay. Um, so the basic background is that um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is, is a US... Um, Act, but it actually comes through from the World Intellectual Property Organization. So it's to do with treaties that allow for the enforcement of copyright uh, and uh, trademarks overseas and comes out from that World Intellectual Property Organization. It deals, DMCA, I should add, actually deals solely with copyright. Copyright in most jurisdictions, in most countries around the world, is an automatic right. So you don't have to register it like you would with a trademark. Copyright automatically vests in the text or whatever it is you've put together. Um, so you don't actually have to file for it. Under the, the Lanham Act, a trademark is only protected in the United States, and it would then have to be enforced in every separate jurisdiction outside of the US. Whereas if you're using the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it's a one-stop shop. So it would then cover multiple different jurisdictions through the different treaties that the U.S. has signed so that it can enforce its intellectual property around the world through the World Intellectual Property Organization. As far as anyone knows, I understood every single word of that. Okay, so that is the textbook (laughs) definition. Uh, Let's dumb it down a little bit. Um, Let's talk about, you know, what, what I can and can't do then, because... I've been very careful with Missed Apex to call it Missed Apex Podcast. And uh, now mm. sometimes with a show title, we'll call it F1 News, Missed Apex F1 does this. And of course, our Twitter handle is at Missed Apex F1. Have I, have I done the right things? Have I been too cautious? Am I in trouble with my Twitter handle? That, that's a good question. Um, and it's interesting because, of course, you, you, you then go out there. There's loads of other blogs um, and websites from all different types of news sources out there with F1 in the title. Um, I think the issue here was the fact that it was, as, as Matt highlighted, the fact that it was right at the beginning of the domain. And if you actually then looked um, as the, the site was originally set up, so um, I think it's now changed over, but if you originally went to, the, to this domain, you would objectively, as the average person, if you went along to this site, you could possibly have had the view that is this actually in some way linked to Formula One officially. It wasn't necessarily obvious that it was a separate organization. So whereas in the instance you've got Missed Apex F1, it's it's very clear in that instance that Missed Apex is a separate um, project, a separate organization, a separate entity. 
but I don't think it was necessarily obvious to, as I say, the casual observer that that was the case with with this other site that we're looking at. Yeah. So obviously, it will be interesting to see how much of their reach they can maintain with a different name, because trying to tell people Missed Apex podcast is definitely an F1 podcast is actually quite challenging without infringing on just occasionally saying Formula One. We do Formula One. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's a struggle. You suddenly have to go around every podcast app, make sure you're appearing there, do all the Google searches from the incognito tab, which, as we know, is for searching for presents for your wife so she doesn't know, um, and Googling yourself to see how you come up without any bias. Um, yeah, I mean, does this tell us anything, though, about how Liberty Media are going to treat the distribution of news in general? Because I always sit here wondering... Why can't I have a journalist in the paddock reporting for us from Trackside? There are some of our written uh, word cousins that have about the same reach we have who are able to get media access to Formula E, Formula One. But it always feels feels like podcasting is still seen as uh, not real reporting, not real journalism. And I'm not going to argue anyone too hard if they're going to tell me what we do isn't journalism. Uh, That's a good point. And I think the... One of the key things is that, I mean, going back, and funny enough, going back to the time when Bernie Sturz first got involved on, I think, trying to take this enforcement action, he did kind of make the issue over the, the, the sort of type and variety of press passes that would be handed out. So they did clamp down on the, the volume of press passes being handed out to the, the paddock a few years ago, um, because I think it was felt that you had your traditional print media journalists, um, you had other specialist journalists, and then you started to get more and more different blogs, podcasts, etc., who would say, oh, yes, we're, we're a media outlet. We need to have this accreditation as well. And I think it was decided, no, this accreditation is actually rather valuable, and we're going to ration it and, and have real value in it. And therefore, they really clamped down on it, which is why we're very lucky, for example, that we get the, the insights from uh, from Uncle Joe on the podcast because it's all, you know, he's giving us that, that first-hand account, but um, it's not particularly easy to get in and that sort of a- get that sort of access. And he also, um, it was interesting that Joe referred to this um, a couple of weeks back. He was saying about how it would be very difficult to get into the paddock and say, if you wanted to come along and do a live podcast recording in there, mm-hmm. that would open up a whole fresh can of worms. If we tried to do Missed Apex live from the paddock with spanners, um, then I'm sure that uh, various people would then come along and say, hang on, you need to pay an extra license for that. I dread to think what, for example, um, Sky and, and Channel 4 pay uh, to be able to wander through the paddock and do the, um, the sort of straightforward work that they do there. Um, by being able to have randomly interview and doorstep people in that way. Um, so, uh, yes, unfortunately in F1, you don't get anywhere without paying rather a large amount for it and having the correct license. Yeah, and of course, Joe was referring to just putting a mic in someone's face and then rebroadcasting that audio interview. But obviously the written guys, they don't do that. They might speak to someone offline with a dictaphone and then they type out or do transcripts of that interview. And maybe there's room for, say, Chris Stevens being there speaking to someone and not playing the recording on the podcast, but just relaying back. Oh, yes, I was speaking to uh, Daniel Ricciardo and he said that actually Spanners is probably the funniest person in F1 media. Right. So am I getting then that really it's it's the live aspect of it that's that's problematic and not so much the fact that you might make a recording as such? I think it's more just due to the fact that if you've got if you've got a license to do stuff live or you've got a license to take that media and then record it, either way, that is all very carefully and jealously guarded. 
it certainly was very tightly guarded when in the uh, the Bernie Eccleston FOM days. That's why it was so significant when uh, Liberty relaxed the rules a little bit and we started to get a little bit more in the way of um, recording and social media uh, by the teams from within the paddock. So we certainly had more of that when it came to um, winter testing uh, this year, but I think it'll be interesting to see if they start to continue a bit of a relaxation and a, a liberalisation of the rules there. Because let's face it, I think the way to get more fans and people engaged in Formula One is going to be by allowing a greater volume of content to go out there um, on uh, various different social media platforms to engage more people. Not everyone, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you could just watch TV and get it. Now you need to engage on multiple different channels. Yeah, and and this is an issue that I have seen because I've I've gone. It's not just FOM that you have to deal with. You actually have to deal with the FIA. They're the ones who set the rules, and that's where the change is really going to need to come from. No matter how much liberty might they might decide that podcasting is the next great thing, and they want as many podcasters as possible wandering around the paddock, generally getting in the way. But the fact of the matter is, the FIA regular the FIA press uh, requirements have no provision made for people who do podcasting whatsoever. So it's literally impossible unless you run a concurrent written site that does meet their qualifications. And even at that, is a traditional print media, you are very much, much advantaged. And it, it's, it is the kind of thinking, it's going to be interesting to see, for me at least, how Liberty plan to deal with this and how much they really want to embrace sort of these new forms of uh, social media expression. That said, I do have a question from the chat room and they would like to know, would it be possible to actually copyright an eyebrow? Is that possible? Can you copyright eyebrows? Thank you, Rob Graham, for a little bit of levity here. I think that's a good, there's a good general question behind that as well. When Peter was saying earlier, he skipped past it saying copyright is kind of implied. So for clarity, if we come up with a poem here, and I say it live on the on the podcast, much like Lewis Hamilton and his just fantastic Princess Diana poetry, that is implicitly copyrighted to me. And therefore, if someone just rips it off and copies it, I have some kind of legal um, discourse to it. Uh, discourse, that's the wrong word. Uh, there's some repercussions to it. Exactly. So if it's a um, piece of original work and you're saying, look, I've written this, I've produced it, it's on whatever you've written, or even if you then produce it as an audio or, or video recording, um, your copyright vests in that material. So when you see at the end of a TV program, it says copyright and then the date and then whichever organization produced it, they haven't had to physically go and register that copyright. The copyright automatically vests in the product. But in doing that, they're then saying you aren't able to then rip this off and put it straight on YouTube. Copyright vests with the copyright owner. Okay, so what about, say, for example, Spanners Ready, a name that I've been going under for the last five years? What's to stop somebody else just setting up and also being Spanners Ready? Um, do I need to go out and, right, let's edit this. Do I need to go, no, don't do it, don't do it. No, but actually, it would help. If somebody could parody me on Twitter, that would help me get my blue tick. But anyway, sorry, Peter. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, re really, it's a matter of saying that where you've got something like that, where indeed you do get doppelgangers, there are rights that you can use um, to en enforce and stop that happening should you wish. 
um, as you'll have seen, I mean, you do get a lot of parody accounts on social media of people claiming to be other people. It's very common who know that, that there might be a Spanners ready out there who is impersonating you with even more followers. Who knows? But it, it comes down to it that, yeah, you can, in that sort of instance, you can then approach whoever is hosting the platform to sort of say, actually, no, it, this is who I am and uh, make it clear who you are and, and try and, uh, if, if need be, if someone is trying to directly impersonate you to try and prevent that. So, and to be clear, then there is a distinction between parody and actual imitation. Like, for example, were I to go out and set up fake spanners ready on Twitter and and be an obvious parody account, and there's uh, clearly a famous example of that in the Formula One world, then I would be well within my rights to do that as as parody or satire. Mm. But if I went online with, like, say, real spanners ready, that would be an entirely different kind of a matter from a legal point of view. It does. In particular, it can give a rise to a problem if you were to actually financially benefit from that in any way. So if you were, if we were talking about the fact that Spanners were to produce some particular content or some product that is actually then making a uh, financial or commercial income from, and that ends up being jeopardized or affected by the activity of a parody, then that's where we then get into some quite interesting areas in terms of the sort of uh, the, okay. the affecting the commercial reality and misrepresentation of that. So um, that's where sometimes you get people who are, you know, if, if it's like you say a comedy parody, well, no one's too worried. But if someone actually starts denigrating the actual person they're parodying or impersonating to their detriment, and you can quantify that loss, if you could turn around and say, I was making $150,000 a year until so-and-so did this, and I can directly attribute the subsequent loss I've made as a direct result of their intervention, then you've actually got a case that you could look to make. Obviously, it is dependent on how the person being parodied feels, I guess, as well. Because uh, Matthew uh, was there talking about um, fake Charlie Whiting. So fake Charlie Whiting was a parody account of the guy who presses the button, who uh, head of the FIA, Charlie Whiting. And... He had like just a pure comedy account and and clearly said, I'm fake Charlie White. And I think he was one of the first guys to kind of explode and use social media like that. But he's been kind of adopted by Charlie Whiting and the FIA. And he's kind of been invited to the paddock and everyone's kind of happy with what he's doing. So I guess that changes the context again. Yes, it certainly does. I mean, you get parodies that uh, do indeed encourage me. There's there's one... um... There's a parody account, Twitter account supposedly of the Queen um, that occasionally does live tweeting during major UK um, events of importance, <laughs> like um, jubilees and things. And if you can live, you can follow this person doing this live parody of sort of the internal monologue of what Her Majesty might be saying at that time, and that's hilarious to look at. Um, but in that instance, I don't think um, you know Her Majesty or the Crown Estate have been particularly upset about that. And subsequently, this person's gone on to actually, in their own right, make books and things that have been actually very successful. Um, so where the individual who's subject to the parody is fine with it, well, that, that's absolutely OK. But if they actually do have a problem and they can quantify loss, then they can seek to do something about it. But this actually comes back to that sort of essential principle when it comes to sort of civil things like this is, is that person you know, do they have a problem? Do they wish to do something about it? And then can you quantify the loss? Sometimes if you can't quantify that loss, a court will say, well, yeah, you might have something here, but what actual loss have you sustained? Yes, very interesting. Uh, and it, actually the story of how uh, fake Charlie Whiting got invited into the paddock and 
got all these opportunities, you know, from just having a Twitter account, essentially, is actually a great story in on in of, of itself. Uh, you know what? We should get him on. We should get him on and have a chat. There's an idea. Tell you what, let's move on a little bit. Matt, what's the chat room up to? Well, you know, um, we were talking about eyebrows, and the question came up specifically, Damon Hill's eyebrows, apparently, <laughs> is what they were talking about. So, And that question comes from Peter Goodchild. So even uh. though he wants to move on, I... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do not. I have to know the story now. <laughs> is, that, is that true? Is that a real thing? Oh, yes, this was a thing. Get um, out. So if, if you remember um, back in, in the dim and distant past of the, the 1990s when dinosaurs ruled the Earth, um, uh, and, you know, and Formula One was a very different beast to what it is now. Um, Damon Hill had a range in terms of in terms of merchandise that made a real point out of his eyebrows, which were felt to be very, very distinctive. Um, and indeed, when you looked at his face, when it got exactly when he'd got the, the helmet on, just covering that sort of just just the eyes and the bridge of the nose, it was indeed very, very distinctive. And um so that I think there's actually Grand Prix year, I think, was the note, the book he did in 94 that actually showed his eyes in the full face helmet, which was quite a distinctive look. So he took that image and then that was actually on numerous T-shirts. Um, indeed, if you joined the Damon Hill supporters fan club, you actually got one of those T-shirts in the post, apparently. Um, but it was then after they'd sort of put had this out there, he actually tried to sort of register that as a trademark that they could then use and. Certainly back in the 1990s, when you used to buy copies of Autosport, they'd have like a, uh, adverts in there for all of this Damon Hill merchandise you could get, including you know, key rings and T-shirts and various things with the eyebrows on there. Well, there's a diversion I wasn't expecting. Uh, but to get back on track, uh, Matt, uh, we obviously talked with Peter just before the McLaren-Honda split. Do you want to just remind us of where we were at at that stage? Because obviously it's happened now. They were going at each other. In the pro- and it seemed all but done that they were going to split. 
but <clears throat> they hadn't actually gone ahead and done it. It's everything was happening sort of behind closed doors. And, and we were just talking through some of the potential, uh, both for Honda in terms of uh, if they suffered a loss losing McLaren and the economic reason behind why McLaren uh, might want to do it, even if it looked like Honda were coming good, which, to be honest, looking at Renault's reliability over the last part of the season, you might be thinking, well, is it better to finish a race or is it better to be at the front till your engine explodes? And I guess we'll find out the answer to that next season. But, but is that about where we left it to your recollection? I think that's where we got to, yes. And I know that I, I was quite concerned at the time before the actual breach, the actual breach of break of the contract was announced, that McLaren was making it difficult for themselves to be appealing to any future engine partners. Given you're about to rush off and sign a customer deal with Renault, surely you'd want to keep the options open. So if a major manufacturer wants to come back to a very buoyant, popular Formula One in the next couple of years, you would want them to think, yes, McLaren is a team we'd want to do business with. Um, my concern remains that they have, in doing this, if you were a major manufacturer coming back to the sport, would you really want to pour in hundreds of millions of dollars um, knowing that McLaren have just ended up doing this for three years with Honda and for certainly one of those years, if not more, um, you know, McLaren pretty much operated a sort of cutthroat to say, well, it's kind of all Honda's fault and that's how it's been left. Matt, what's the chat room saying? Well, they have a very specific question in that they want to know if Honda could actually sue McLaren um, because they did have a 10-year contract, and now now they're working with uh, Scuderia Toro Rosso, which is, a, in terms of the Formula One packing order, a much uh, is very much a midfield, lower-budget team. And, and he's wondering if Honda might really have a cause for action. Uh, they certainly could have done. Uh, I think, though, that this will have been dealt with in one of two ways. I would have anticipated that the contract would have had a break clause in it that would have allowed for either party to terminate a contract of such length. Don't forget that in this instance, okay, McLaren wanted out on the grounds of performance, and there probably were performance clauses in that contract too. Um, but also Honda would have wanted a way out in case um, another world financial crisis hit and they had to get out sharpish, as of course happened in 2008. And so there would have been break clauses on both sides in there. And I think most of this year, given that it looks like now uh, that I think after the winter testing, it looks like McLaren was starting to think we need to get out and start exploring our options. I suspect that preliminary discussions started with Honda pretty early this year to say, look, we're going to have to break this. And I suspect that both parties then probably came to a mutually agreeable financial settlement, whether any money was paid or not. Uh, I, you know, we don't know. And I'm sure there are confidentiality clauses in there, but that I, that will have been subject to a settlement that probably any, even the, the existence of that settlement isn't something that either party is going to talk about. But I think that will mean that we are well away from any messy courtroom litigation, which both parties would have wanted to avoid. After all, it would drag on for years, be expensive. And who out of Honda or McLaren wants details of their engine financing and managerial skills broadcast full through a litigious court process? I would have loved it, but that's just... <laughs> I think you were saying to me earlier, Matt, you were mentioning Joe's comment on the McLaren uh, leadership. 
Oh no, sorry, beg your pardon. I've got myself confused. It was yourself, Peter. You was you know commenting that when Joe was talking about um, McLaren and which principal he'd want to go and have a pint with, he didn't even know who was in charge at McLaren. Surely it's it's Boulier, isn't it? Or 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 is it Zach? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Or or is it Jonathan Neal? Or, I don't know. Or is it someone? I these you are know, genuine I, questions. Yeah, exactly. And but we all know that successful Formula One teams have always been built around one individual who is the ultimate decision maker. Be it Ron back in the day at McLaren, um, be it Christian Horner and the job that he's done at Red Bull, um, really turning that over a long period of time from from a, a midfield team into world champions. But that very often has to be with the clear management decision, decision making, and vision of someone at the top. And management by a committee, I don't think, has ever clearly worked well in Formula One. Okay, don't talk to any engineering firm ever because that's what we do. We process the the hell out of it, and a lot of the vision gets lost when you do that. When you have departments that are then having to convene together to agree way forward, ways forward and, and every department kind of has a veto and a checkpoint and a balance, what you end up doing is having a large group of people who don't have the freedom to go out of their box, who end up just working to a set of requirements. And, and so what you will get is a Formula One car rather than an Adrian Newey or a Steve Jobs vision of how this phone is going to be used, what you end up is, and I'm a Sam- Samsung fan here, but you end up with that kind of more scattergun approach where there's lots of different departments have come up with lots of different ideas and it's very, very hard to pull them all together into a coherent argument. Yeah, exactly so. Um, it, it's I, I just find it quite revealing, having read uh, from a number of different authors on this, that over time you, you sort of find that different teams where there hasn't been a clear organisational structure, that's where very often things get lost and mismanaged um, over the years, and it still seems to be the case. Um, so I'm, I'm quite fearful for a McLaren at the moment because I think having now made this choice to go with Renault and we saw the uh, Matt Matz referred to the reliability problems they had at the end of the season, they've no longer got anything to hide behind. So if it turns out that they have a difficult start to the season, are they going to be able to point and say, oh, well, it's down to this Renault engine now that's the problem? Because you aren't really going to want to say that to your customer uh, supplier that early. And they're going to be awfully exposed. And I, you know what? I, I, McLaren is a successful mark. It's one of the big for big Formula One teams. I really want it to do well. So please don't say, oh, this guy's just giving McLaren a kicking. I really want them to do well. Um, I'm just really concerned that just bolting a new engine into the back isn't going to do it. And I am concerned that there's nowhere then to hide. Don't forget in 2013 and 14, they had um, a Merc in the back of that car and it still wasn't a front runner. Yeah, it didn't really make their point, did it, Trumpets, when they weren't even beating Williams that season? No, it didn't. And and the pressure is on, I think, not just um, because you would think now with the Renault, based on what they said, they should be nipping at Red Bull's heels very regularly this season. And if they're not, then you're correct. They are exposed. But I believe that the power behind the McLaren throne these days is Mansoor OJ, who is mm. a financier. And uh, I'm it's I'm dragging it out of the depths of memory. This is not I haven't gone and researched it, made sure it's true. But I'm pretty sure he's put them on fairly short notice in terms of how they're spending and what they're up to and what he's going to be willing to fund going forward. So it, it's they're they're really maybe up against the wall in terms of being a front running Formula One organization. I really hope that, you know, 
we're being a little bit negative here, perhaps, but I really hope that we're proved wrong and that they have a successful 2018. If they don't, I am fearful. I mean, let's face it, even with the fantastic resources that they've got there in Woking and their, their successful um, car brand now as well uh, as a manufacturer um, uh, and, you know, push, pushing forward the whole global Britain thing in the brave new world. Um, too soon, I just, too soon. <laughs> but I, I, you know, and, and I really hope that they, they're able to carry on doing that. And in fact, they're looking at building a factory up here in, I'm, I'm based in Yorkshire and they're looking at having a, a new uh, factory here in Yorkshire to manufacture a lot of the parts that are currently made elsewhere in Europe. And, uh, you know, it's a great investment and they're a, a great organization, but they've just had three years of poor performance with Honda. And I hope that they have a really strong year now with Renault, but the signs are, are difficult. Isn't this a fantastic parallel to what we think with the drivers? So when we have two drivers together and one's beating another and we wonder how they are relative to other teams, uh, we go, well, you know, we know Ricciardo beat Vettel and we know Vettel beat Raikkonen, therefore, and Raikkonen was also ahead of Massa for one season. Therefore, that means Kimi Raikkonen is better than Max Chilton by two seconds. And we do all that kind of maths and work it out. But it kind of is working now with such um, an era where engines are so important. The engine team relationship is kind of like that driver relationship. So it's one of the great things about Formula One is it's like test cricket on a massive scale. You are rewarded for making predictions, having patience and watching things evolve over years and decades. I think there's no value to being an F1 fan over one season. You miss most of the nuance. Yes, you'll see the races. Yes, you'll see the crashes, but you don't see that story unfold. And and this, how Toro Rosso does with Honda or more fittingly, how Honda does with Toro Rosso and how McLaren do with this Renault engine, considering how much everyone has been saying the chassis is fantastic for the last two years being let down by Honda. People have taken sides. It's as bad as Rosberg-Hamilton. People have taken sides on whether it was McLaren's fault, whether it was Honda's fault. And we are going to see it because as you guys are telling me, there is absolutely nowhere to hide next season for either of those outfits. Uh, Matt, what's the chat room up to? Uh, well, uh, LGH Jotma, if I've said that correctly, brings up, uh, <laughs> did you hear the story from Toto Wolf who said McLaren-Mercedes would be possible? but not Red Bull and Mercedes because of the way Red Bull had talked about Renault well, in the that past. Makes, yeah, that makes Peter's point perfectly. Yeah, but interesting that Mercedes would countenance working with McLaren there. So perhaps the damage that I was fearful of isn't as, uh, isn't as great. I mean, obviously, you know, Honda's performance was so poor for such a long period of time. And I think some of their communication sometimes wasn't great either that, um, perhaps there isn't the the long term damage. I think people do feel perhaps well. Did McLaren have much else that they could do? And that's kind of the impression I got from your conversations with Joe Spanners, because he seemed to be suggesting that McLaren really couldn't have been expected to persevere with that relationship any longer than they did. It's just the manner that it was finished that I still still worry about it. Uh, yeah, but really, Zach Brown was very patient until right near the end, uh, and nearly everyone from McLaren was, except for one individual which was fernando alonso and it's almost like fernando alonso he's kind of like the crazy old man of f1 he's like eh, i'll take it on the chin gp2 engine it's pathetic this is lame uh, everyone's breezing past us he took the brunt of all of that kind of negative pr coming out of mclaren and i think if you kind of listen to the background noise mclaren weren't saying a great deal they were just letting alonso do this for year after year and maybe people are saying well it was alonso doing that not mclaren it was just things like that 
scene that was very clearly intended for the TV cameras of the McLaren senior management walking into the Renault motorhome in, I think it was Monza, that I thought didn't play well. I thought that could have been done behind closed doors somewhere else. You know, that, that if that was them walking in there to sign a contract or have a big discussion, I thought that should have taken place <laughs> at an airport or, or an office somewhere else. It shouldn't have taken place in the full glare of the world's media. And they knew exactly what they were doing. But is that not normal games, gamesmanship, though? If you're wanting to keep a, work, a major motor manufacturer like Honda in F1, okay, as I say, their performance was poor, but I thought it wasn't a great way to... Because I don't think that they hadn't formally announced the end of the relationship by that point before they were then walking in with Renault. And it, it just... I like to think of, of McLaren as extending the, the sort of gentlemanly nature of... Uh, of, of business in the UK and I did I just felt that was sort of it wasn't very British it wasn't quite <laughs> wasn't cricket wasn't cricket oh do we still see ourselves like that and that's why we can never win the football world cup because well we're complaining that we were fouled outrageously the Italians are sitting there trying to get fouled trying to trick the referee and their newspapers say he did it he won a penalty he managed to trick the referee whereas we say oh it's not fair play uh, and that's that's why it's been since 1966 that we've won a major trophy uh, Matt I'm going to give us a choice where, where do you think we should go with the limited time with this legal subject matter expert do we do we revisit uh, Lewis Hamilton's tax and get a real proper lawyer's view of it or do we go to Lewis Hamilton's social media dress gate? Ooh, you know, I'm tempted to choose dress gate just because everybody will be that's very clickable. But I'll be honest with you. I, I watched the dress gate thing and it's clear he was just playing with his nephew and having a good time and not actually chastising him. And is apparent the tone of it was just clear to me. That's what was going on. So I wasn't bothered by it. Feel free to yell at me on Twitter if you disagree. I say we talk about the tax thing because if there's anything better than tires, it's got to be taxes. All right, you win. But I will say that at the end of the day, he did that casually without thinking about it. Then he went on and said, oh, actually, looking back, I can see that came across a bit bad. Didn't mean it like that. Sorry. So why did everybody get excited after that? Uh, but also, uh, it really brought out the worst in Twitter. A lot of people just coming out and kind of defending his initial view as if it wasn't a joke. Uh, and, you know, come on, to those people, just let people live. It's none of your business if people wear a dress. Peter? Well, in several ways, you're both right in that I, absolutely this was just a casual, personal thing. It was great that Lewis Hamilton was actually sharing it in these days of sanitised drivers and... You know, he, he is a throwback to people who are honest and he actually does try and share a lot of his life. He does try and tell us what he's thinking, what he's feeling, and this fitted into that. However, it was an unguarded moment. Um, and unfortunately, it gave a window into something that if we were in the harsh spotlight of saying, well, um, you know, is this actually being slightly um, discriminatory in this behavior? Is he actually a, a little bit of an element of bullying here? Well, it, mm, did he attend that? Of course he didn't. But it, when it's going out to several million people on social media, it can be interpreted in so many ways. One of the things um, I end up doing is advising a lot of organizations when they have big social media followings just to be incredibly Ooh. sensitive in terms of the content that they send yeah, out. Yeah, I might need just you in several very, years to help me. <laughs> but for this very, very 
clear reason that if you've got several million people following your account, something that you might think is perfectly funny and throwaway and relaxing and cute could be something that actually is discriminatory to someone somewhere. And we now live in a world where everything is shared and looked at that you unfortunately do have to take account of these things. Hence the very um, quick apology that was made. And I must admit, I looked at the wording of the apology. I thought, has that been written by Lewis or has it been written by, for him by someone? Is that, to do you recognize and... the, the language and tone? You think, oh, I could have written that. <laughs> kind of. Uh, but I think it could be even a little bit. I, 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 I didn't write it. I, I hasten yeah. to add. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, it could be just more simple than that. It could be Lewis Hamilton is a relatively young man. He hasn't got kids of his own. He's not a parent. His nephews are clearly young, so his whole little circle is having young children. You're seeing all these things for the first time. And I, I bet there's a million uncles around the world who've seen their their nephews dress up in dresses and gone, hey, that's not right. Boys don't wear dresses. Oh, just hit my own mic. <laughs> uh, and I have to say, of, of all my male nephews, of which I've got about seven or eight, I think they've all worn dresses at some point. And people react and laugh. And it's funny because we're not used to seeing it. I don't think it's quite deserving of quite uh, of the blow up however given that it's highlighted an issue which causes a lot of people everyday pain and suffering i think it's quite right that we have a social reaction to say do you know what that isn't quite right for this reason because we make it hard for certain members of our community to go about their day-to-day life not with just this one comment but the fact that this is a general perception that has plagued their entire life yeah and I mean, it, it's interesting that Lewis has pretty much grown up with social media. Um, so he was actually a bit slower to get onto social media compared to some other drivers. So I think Jensen was on Twitter for a number of years before um, Lewis opened up his Twitter account. But I think he now has, I think, I, I know if, if not the most popular Twitter account amongst the Formula One drivers, one of the most popular. His Instagram is incredibly popular. And... It just kind of shows that in this instance, no matter what the context of what's being shared, um, you're going to such a wide audience and a very discerning audience that, unfortunately, it is something where you do have to be mindful of that. And I think after this, Lewis may actually sit down and think, or he might actually sit down with a few specialists who might say, look, here are just some essential ground rules just to think about here. Um, what sort of stuff do you want to have on your social media channels? Do we want it to be personal stuff? Do we want it to be inspirational stuff? Do we want lifestyle stuff? Do we want to be inspiring the next generation? What what sort of message do you want to be giving out on here? And then give him a few just general ground rules to think about that he's able to do before then clicking record and, and post because that's clearly what happened in this instance. And he thought, I'm just going to share this. It's a wonderful little family moment. Isn't this going to be great? And I'm sure he never dreamt he was going to get this response that he did. Or it could have a positive response where he thinks about it and goes, oh, it's all right if people wear dresses. The Greeks used to. The Romans lauded the Greeks for their sophistication in wearing dresses. In fact, the Romans said... Only barbarians wear trousers. But since we've tricked Matt into going down this route, let's get your quick thoughts on tax. But, you know, I have to play a bumper. I like that kind of thing. I can't believe those words have just come out of my, ma- uh, out of my mouth. Let- let's move on to tax. Come on. Uh, we- everyone's been dying to know. Hey, just just give us a quick skinny then, because there has been a, okay. there was a huge reaction about Lewis Hamilton being a tax dodger. And now just about every Twitter post that's got more than five replies on it 
uh, about Lewis Hamilton has somewhere along the lines of pay your taxes, wear a dress all you want, pay your taxes. And that's what we've been reading. And there's a drumbeat. It's worse than the, the Gary Lineker one, the S one that we all know about. Uh, it's a drumbeat. People are convinced he did something wrong. Did he do something wrong? So basically this story broke because of a large, um, leak of papers called the Paradise Papers, if, if, if you're wanting to sort of read any of the, uh, the background to this. Uh, Lewis was one of a number of high net worth individuals and organizations whose tax arrangements um, were ended up being uh, leaked to the media. So as well as his arrangement with his plane, um, there was Bono and the fact that he owns a shopping center somewhere that is a highly efficient tax vehicle for him. And with Lewis, what he'd done, and um, this is the very basics, I could give you half an hour on this again, but basically he'd so, he'd purchased his jet, which we see lots of on Instagram, and then he basically did a common thing of selling it and then leasing it back um, through a, in a more tax-efficient um, manner. Now, I think the important thing to emphasize here that in terms of what Lewis did, and in terms of what Bono did, and all of most of the people named in, in in this league, we aren't actually talking about anything that is illegal. There's the specific thing of tax avoidance, which this is avoiding paying tax, and tax evasion, which is illegally going behind the tax man to do things. So, for anyone who sat and looked at the um, tax code in the UK or the tax code in the US, and if anyone looked oh, at the yeah, recent tax yeah. bill that went through in, in detail. Um, <laughs> Daily. We, we speak of little else around the dinner table here. Well, sometimes it's important to read something to be able to fall asleep at night, isn't it? Um, I've got Matt's it, it, blogs. <laughs> you laugh, but I've already I've had several conversations with my accountant about that, and I am not a high net worth individual. But if you are losing deductions and you're not making a lot of money, then it's potentially very, very problematic. Indeed. And uh, having just seen uh, a number of copies of the uh, new tax bill that's gone through it in the States, actually in, in its raw form was in um, print and then heavy annotations were made. And that's the version that's actually gone through with handwritten amendments and post-it notes. Then it just shows the complexity of the tax system. And these systems are so complex that then, you know, you, you get some very clever people in the accounting profession who will always work out a loophole, a way to um, look after money in a more efficient way. And that's what Lewis was doing here. It's what Jimmy Carr was doing a few years ago. So, you know, Jimmy Carr had to make that apology because it ended up being talked about in Parliament in the United Kingdom. Uh, and in a, in a similar way, you know, this has become a, a bit of a sort of albatross for Lewis, even though what he was doing isn't actually illegal. It's the fact that it upsets people because what he was doing is in effect, he's paying less tax than if he just lived in a large house in Stevenage. So is there anything kind of morally bankrupt about it? Is he stealing money that would have gone to the NHS? Or, or is this something that's kind of inevitable when you have that that high amount of wealth and assets? There is a certain sense of inevitability to it. I remember seeing an interview with Gerhard Berger from the 1990s um, talking about what a fantastic place Monaco was to live. And he's like, the lifestyle and the boats, and the beaches and the sun and the weather and the people and the celebrities. And then he looked at the camera and he went, yeah, the real reason's tax. <laughs> That's why they all do it. It's because, and let's face it, if you've then got a, a high value uh, coming through to you, and particularly as a sportsman like Lewis or Gerhard Berger or any other Formula One driver, your earning potential is finite. 
you will earn mega bucks, but then come that age, which for Lewis, who knows, might not be too far off the way he sometimes talks. You then have to think that's your big payday gone. I know he has his dreams of doing things in the fashion industry and poetry and music, but his big earning is signing these contracts with McLaren. McLaren and Mercedes, and that's where he's made his money. And he then has to invest that to last him for the rest of his life and to sustain his family as well. So you're going to do that no matter what the value of money is, you're going to do that in the most tax efficient way possible. And even then, when you get the good advice from the accountant, it doesn't always work out. And I would point you to the rather sad example of James Hunt, who sadly invested a lot of his money from the 1970s uh, in some really bad investments and businesses that none of which went particularly well. And he was not a wealthy man by the time he passed in the early 90s. And of course, you can look at Kevin Bacon and those EE adverts that he has to do before your movie comes on. That was due to him losing most of his money in a Ponzi scheme is the story I've heard. So, really? you know, yeah, so just because you're mega rich, it doesn't mean you're not vulnerable. Your vulnerabilities are simply larger than the vul- vulnerabilities that, that we face. Uh, trumpets. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of these things where you like to look for, I think they call them comparables. And so I did a little bit of very simple digging, and it turns out that of the organizations that the the companies that actually run Formula One, of which Liberty now owns the controlling shares, Slack Holdings in the Channel Islands, Paxhaven, Formula One Group is in, uh, I think, either Jersey or Luxembourg, or parts of it are in both, Delta Topco, which is Bernie's own personal company that he used to directly control all the other companies. Channel Islands again. Uh, in addition to Lewis, we have Button, Massive, Verstappen, and Ricardo all living in Monaco, and uh, Hulkenberg as well in Switzerland, along with Alonso. Although he did move back to Spain, mm. interestingly enough, rumored to have cost him about fifty million dollars to do that. Yeah. So it's not an uncommon thing, and I don't hear anyone getting up on there pony to yell about these companies doing this on a regular basis so uh, yeah it's just business is what i would say any last word on that peter just to say that as well this is something that is as old as the hills the rumor is that the reason why um uh sir jackie stewart retired when he did and went to then live in switzerland was to be closer to his money um and he's made it last but you know at the time he was one of the highest paid sportsmen in the world and um you know, he, he lived in Switzerland and had his family there in, in the late 60s um, because he knew that that was his time to earn. And he's stayed domiciled in Switzerland to this day, as far as I know. Peter, we value your time fantastically. And we are just grateful that we have you here for an hour and we don't get billed your hourly rate. When <laughs> you tell people that you're going to have an, a Formula One show with a lawyer, uh, does that does that inspire people? No, it doesn't. Does that make people think it's going to be exciting? No, no, it doesn't. But I promise you that I've already had messages from the chat room and WhatsApp that, uh, that say they have enjoyed your content. So we're very glad to, to have that kind of depth of subject matter expert. If people were to follow you on social media, I mean, just as a Formula One fan, which you are, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, it's at Digital Law UK. Excellent. And I'm pleased to say I've recently broke the 10,000 follower limit. So um, I'm, I'm told it's not all boring. So do please feel free to give me a follow on there. 
not jealous, not jealous, not jealous. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you're here. If you're going to be a regular, semi-regular part of Missed Apex podcast, which I, I hope you will be, uh, who is your favorite driver and team? Okay. Um, that's a very good question at the moment because I always used to be a Jensen fan. Uh, and before that, I was a Damon Hill fan. And before that, I was a Nigel Mansell fan. So you can tell there's a theme running there. Um, so my, my favorite driver at the moment is is Lewis, um, our, our four-time world champion. Uh, and my, <laughs> my favorite team is Williams. Yeah. Because right? I used to, you know, in the 1990s, they were fantastic. And they've they've had their struggles. And I really hope that they, they come back in the future. Um, I, like, you know, they're, they're, they're a very British team, very good engineering skills and everything i'd love to see them come back it's getting harder isn't it it's getting harder and harder to be a williams Mm. fan you feel like there's going to be a critical mass where people of our generation and i don't want to be unkind peter but i think we're about the same age uh drop off the cliff of following uh williams (laughs) i know but i there's there's little things that happen and sometimes you start to your heart begins to wander and then i saw that guy martin uh channel four film earlier this year where they had guy martin doing a pit stop with them at the belgian grand prix and i can recommend any missed apex fans who haven't seen it find it watch it it's great because you actually they sort of lift the veil on how williams works on its pit stops and why they've had the trophy for the quickest um pit stops in recent years which is a change from those of you who were formula one fans in the 90s and remember the mess they used to make of so many pit stops. It's great to see that they have actually mastered that now. Peter Wright, thank you very much. Matt Trumpets, who has this week's comment of the week? Well, this was a tough one. It's it's down to a fight between Lowstrop, who says, I assume any driver I see on Sky did money very wrong. <laughs> oh, that's unkind. Come on. <laughs> Emmanuel Beast, you say tax evasion. I see tax innovation. Smart. And Rob Graham, Hamilton's engineer, owns a shopping center. Hamilton is paying him too much. Ooh. But I think the winner. Oh gosh. Oh, and also Emmanuel Beast with right. If an F1 car wants to identify as an Indy car, I say let it. Is PC gone mad? No, we can't have it. But I think the winner might have to be Philip Allen for the very succinct F1 head skirts a few years ago. <laughs> there you go, Lewis. Your nephew's got ground effect. Comment of the week. Thank you very much. And I think it's worth mentioning that we were thinking about talking about grid girls today and the fact that Liberty are looking at removing them from the pit lane. We have a variety of views on grid girls in the Missed Apex panel. I think we've kind of generally came to the conclusion that, as Peter said it, it will just sound like a lot of blokes saying what they reckon in a shed. Uh, so we felt that we weren't quite... Uh, what diverse enough to give the subject a proper voice uh, we are working on that uh, and we will hope to address that subject properly uh, and i'm not saying that we are not capable of doing it however perhaps we don't tick or we don't want to insult anyone put it that way um make sure you join us on the 14th for the bradley philpot masterclass where, as we said earlier, Matt rescued me from a house fire by taking over the show and speaking to Bradley Philpott about how to set up your sim racing rig. But also it's very relevant to us watching motorsport because it's a lot about how the car feels. So when a car does a thing and you're expecting another thing, 
What is it that you should have changed? The 7th of January, we're going to have the second part of the tech show that Summers did with us that we put out as a series of YouTube mini episodes. Um, this is the second hour-long audio recording where he covers the second half of Red Bull and Ferrari through the season. Uh, and then I will come back and we'll do a news show, I think, on the 21st. Uh, that is the weekend that I will be doing the BRKC pit lane reporting gig. So I'll be all um, excited uh, after doing my first bit of trackside reporting. And just remember that not only do you get a great karting experience by joining us for the Mist Apex Karting, but you will also get to meet Summers. Summers F1 is coming with us. Alex Van Jean, Jeansy. Bradley Philpot himself is coming along. Chris, Rainbow Sparkle Stevens, and myself, Spanners Ready, at Spanners Ready on Twitter. Why not come and join us until we see you again live? Remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. Oh, thank goodness for editing, eh, Matt? The magic, none of that had to happen. And now the audio listeners, but what? What did we miss? Nothing. Everyone whistle nonchalantly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.